Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Today we're going to be in the book of 2 Thessalonians. We've been in 1 Thessalonians, if you know where that is. Believe it or not, 2 Thessalonians is just right after. We're going to be in the first chapter for just a second before we focus on a paragraph in the second chapter. As we kind of wrap up, bring together these thoughts on what Paul teaches in 1 and 2 Thessalonians about the end of the world and what we know about it. It's helpful stuff. It's in Scripture. It's confusing stuff because... The same sort of rules that we get early on in Scripture apply, which is that we're not going to know when Jesus is going to return. And we're supposed to live with a posture of readiness. You are supposed to be seated with your bags packed. Not in idleness. We'll talk about that. The whole of chapter 3 is focused on that. But the idea is that the Christian is like a traveler waiting on the little ding from Uber to say, I'm here. At any moment, Jesus is coming. Because of that, we're supposed to live in both a posture of readiness. These things are supposed to encourage us live in a posture of readiness while also not getting kind of taken by this speculation on when Jesus will return. Can we figure it out? Can I plot the signs? Is there a way to know that he's about to come tomorrow? What I want us to do today is to dig into some more details that were given in 2 Thessalonians for the purpose of being encouraged. And honestly, this will be our last sermon in this series, so there's a lot more to think about. Obviously, we could have dug deeper into the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, the book of Revelation in the New Testament, but I think we've gotten enough of the kind of meat of how this kind of teaching is to encourage us. And honestly, we would love to go through those books. We will at some point. But today, let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, turn or tap your way there. If not, let us please gift you with one. Don't panic. The words are going to be on the screen. But let us please gift you with one so that you have a copy to be able to take home and read through these things and see, is that what the Bible is saying? In chapter 1, Paul says a couple of different things. If you remember, he's planted this church. He's writing letters to this church. It's a church that is under a lot of persecution And he says in verse 8, so just before verse 8, when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, verse 8, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they'll suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now, honestly, when I come up to talk to you, I think about, oh, let me think of some like silly thing to say to kind of get started and get everybody together or whatever. And yesterday was Halloween. Is there something I could say about Halloween that would maybe be like, ha ha, now Bible, you know. Um, generally, that's what we try to do. And like, oh, did you have a spooky Saturday? Ah. Listen, Halloween is supposed to be sort of scary, but not. And that's the fun of it, is that it's like it's scary, but it's not really. You go to a haunted house, and they're going to scare you, but they're not actually going to touch you, hopefully. Uh, it, it's supposed to be scary, but not. And that kind of thrill with safety is a moment. That's something people enjoy. 
And, you know, we don't get real into it in my family. Kids are still young, but if you want something spooky, this concept, this is scary. The Bible is just so drastic. It's either you're going to marvel at his coming because you've believed, or you're going to be separated forever because you didn't choose to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And he's got this one side where it's like going to be with him forever, and then this other side, which he says in this couple of verses, he says, eternal destruction. We're not a church that's going to just dwell on the fire of hell, but we are a church that's going to dwell on the meaning of hell. Why does the Bible have this drastic either-or? Because you're either going to choose to have God or choose to reject God. And because God is such a good thing that He is all goodness, every good and perfect thing comes down from above, from the Father of lights. Because He is so good, to be with Him is heaven. To be without Him is destruction. We had a whole sermon on hell that we did not too long ago. I'd love for you to go back and listen to But even if you're not sure that you believe or don't believe on some of the stuff the Bible says about hell, maybe it's just a fear tactic, whatever, you still, I think, would agree that you have to watch your own heart and you you have to make sure that you're choosing to love things that are more worthy and choosing not to love things that are less worthy. That if our culture still has a category for the word wicked... We use it to mean somebody who loves something that we would all agree is destructive. So let's work our way around from there. If you can agree on that point, then you also can agree that if you love something that is more worthy, not only not wicked, but good, that's better for you. That changes you. That says something about you and about your heart, that you value what is good. Now, just keep going up to scale. If you then say, not only am I not one of these wicked people, I'm not even one of these neutral people who love things that are just okay and our whole culture is kind of into, but I'm one of these people who's selfless because I love stuff that is outside of me. I love the, the orphan community. I love those that are on the outside. I love caring for those who are under oppression. Whatever it is that you're into that's just outside of yourself. And we all look at those people and we say, wow, not only is that good, but I want to be like them. I want to have a heart that values what is good, so much so that it changes the way that I live and act. The Christian is merely saying that we have chosen to put our hearts to say that what we love most is what is most worthy of love. That's what heaven is, that that's what heaven will be, is being with him forever. That's why we try and make this huge distinction between religion and gospel. It's not about doing, 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 and being most impressive in the way that we act. It's about loving, 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 and having this love of a person. Not that he's a man like we are, though he took on flesh, but God, who has a personality. He's not a principle. He's a thing that is a person that you love and receive love from. What you choose to love matters. I think we can all agree on that. Choosing to love 
him is what we mean when we talk about becoming a Christian. It's coming to Christ and saying, in this person's life, I see a beauty that is most worthy. That claiming to be God, he he didn't make himself into a crazy person. He showed that he's actually sublime. Choosing to love him, becoming one of his followers. That's what we mean by being a Christian, being saved by him, forgiven by him. So, we would be marveling at his face when he returns. That's the, what it means to be the Christian. Please don't let these first couple of verses just hang you up on these words like eternal destruction and punishment. They should scare you into evaluating what it is that your heart loves most. And if we can agree on that, then following that chain up to what is most worthy... Then he continues, though, in chapter 2, he starts to talk about some of the stuff that's going to happen. Again, it seems like the Thessalonians are getting confused by these end times things and that their productivity, the way that they're going to work to build God's kingdom, is getting derailed by some of these misunderstandings. That sounds familiar to our own age. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he starts to remind them of some of the things he's taught them that are going to be signs of Jesus' that'll take place before Jesus is coming. And he's telling them to say that Jesus hasn't already returned, that the resurrection isn't some sort of a spiritual thing that's already happened, that Jesus didn't come and sneak a couple of you away and the rest of you just somehow didn't figure it out. And in the process, he lets us in on two more signs that are going to take place before Jesus returns. Understanding them, though, is not going to be us trying to process how do we know when Jesus is going to come back. Understanding them is going to be helping us process what kinds of things do we want to make sure has nothing to do with us or our church, and what kind of things should we love and value. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, meaning the day that Jesus comes again, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. There's one of the signs. And... The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, what we have here are two different signs that are going to take place before Jesus returns. The question would be, what the heck do we do with those signs? I'm telling you a little bit about what to do in principle, but I mean, what do you do to understand what the Bible wants you to know about those things? So we're going to read it. We're going to understand it. We're going to look at the rest of the Bible and see what it does to help us understand it and then process. Here's what it says. There's some kind of rebellion and there's some kind of a person, a man of lawlessness, a son of destruction who's revealed. First, let's look at this word, rebellion. Now, the Bible was originally written in the language of Greek, or at least the New Testament was. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and just a little bit of Aramaic, but the New Testament is written in Greek. And it's helpful to know that because when you go back and look at the word that they use for the word rebellion, it kind of helps us to see what it is that he's talking about because it's not a political rebellion. The actual word that they use there is the word apostasy. I don't know if you knew or not, but apostasy is actually a word from the Greek. The Greek word in the original is apostasia. I don't know if you know the similarity there, but the word apostasy and the word apostasia, that's the same word. 
He's not talking about just a rebellion, not just some sort of a political rebellion, not something that in our language even has a little bit of a positivity to it. Yeah, I'm a rebel. That's kind of like a cool thing. Not that I know a lot about coolness, but it has like a kind of a cool tinge to the word. But the word apostasy doesn't. Apostasy is a falling away from a religious ideal. So when we talk about it in in the context of the Bible, we're saying that people have walked away from their love of God. All the stuff I was just saying about chapter 1 still applies here. They had a love of God. They had a pursuit of God. And they've chosen now to walk away from Him. If that's the word and that's the context, and it is, then what he's talking about is not some sort of giant political issue. He's talking about something that takes place among the people who claim to be God's people. That there's some sort of massive walking away from, there's some massive leaving, cooling, walking away from, rebellion against our God. And then, or at the same time, I think the way that these are presented, he says, Remember, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, so there's some um, simultaneousness or one right after the other between these two signs, you have this man of lawlessness. And again, in the original language, it just says, man of anomas. Ah, meaning not, and then law. It's just man without law. And what he does is he not only opposes worship, of other kinds, or worship of even the true God, but he sets himself up in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. All of this has all of this religiosity to it, and there's a part of you that thinks like, okay, well, I think we're okay then. Because there isn't some sort of worldwide grand religion, there isn't some sort of a temple right now that he could put himself in and sit and claim to be God. And if he did, I don't think it would be that convincing If there was some real popular person out in the world who claimed to be God, I don't know that I would follow him. I think I would even have the discernment to pick that out and say, oh, okay, well, then that guy might be this man of lawlessness. But, as we're going to talk about in just a second, there's a lot of deception that's going on here. In Daniel chapter 11, so very briefly to connect to some of the other parts of Scripture that talk about what we're reading, anytime we're confused by something that we're reading in Scripture, it's very helpful to look at how the rest of the Bible understands what we're reading In Daniel chapter 11, as you get to the end of that chapter in verses 36 to 39, you have this same guy being talked about, and he not only rejects God, in fact, but he doesn't really reject God in language. It says that he still worships a God. But in authority, he puts himself above all. He's speaking for God. He's making laws for God without honoring the true God. I don't know if anybody else cares enough uh, about those Chronicles of Narnia books to like reread them as an adult. But when you get to the last one, there's this picture of an orangutan who uses a donkey in order to deceive all of the Narnians that Aslan has returned. Or there is a deceiver who uses the symbolism that all the people agree on, the symbolism that comes from God himself, as a way to trick and then enslave all of the people who are supposed to be followers of the true God. I think that's a very helpful deal. If you have time to read that book, read it. The idea is that the enemy never plays fair. 
He never shows you his cards. He's always going to deceive. He's always going to shade. He's always going to make it very hazy, very difficult. And he's going to pull on desires that you already have. It's very difficult to pin down exactly what Paul is describing here because if you take the principles that you see and then start looking in history to see if you can find any examples of it, you're actually overwhelmed by the number of examples you find. This stuff is happening all the time. Every cult leader who's ever lived has tried to take a little bit of truth and mix it with just a little bit of error to begin with until they're able to gain authority over a people and start to institute themselves as God. Not in name, but in practice, and eventually in name. So how do we understand what we're seeing? If this is happening all the time, has Jesus returned over and over again? When will he return? When will it be so big that we know it's the sign and that Jesus is about to return? Let's keep looking. So this understanding of the temple of God is very helpful as well. He talks about this destruction of or seating himself in the temple of God. Now, in that way also we have what you might call a cyclical fulfillment. Something that's happening over and over and over again throughout history. It is fulfilled time and time again as you see these sorts of things take place in miniature and one day take place in full. Here's what I mean. When Daniel was writing what what he wrote in Daniel 11 about this one to come, he was living under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, a one who destroyed Solomon's temple and then literally set up a golden image of himself for everybody to worship. Sounds very similar to 2 Thessalonians 2. Then, after the time of Daniel, between the time of the writing of the Old Testament and the time of the writing of the New Testament, you have this rebellion that takes place, the Maccabean Revolt, where God's people, the Jews, had this revolt against, if you don't know if you know your history very well, but Alexander the Great, Greek guy, he took over all of this area, he dies young, his four generals become leaders over kind of like a split version of his kingdom. And the Seleucid Empire is the one that are reigning over Judea. And this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, he so crushes the Jews that they revolt against him. But in part of his revolt against them, his, his persecution, his crushing of them, he actually goes into the second temple and sacrifices a pig on the altar takes an unclean animal in order to sacrifice, in order to desecrate that temple and make it into a temple of Zeus, not a temple of Yahweh. And he does it as somebody, Atiochus Epiphanes. His name actually means God manifest. You get into AD 70, so after the time of the writing in the New Testament, that second temple that was desecrated and then sort of reinstituted or whatever by Antiochus Epiphanes is then destroyed by the Roman Empire. You have these micro-fulfillments. Still, Jesus hasn't returned. There's this way in which they repeat, and you see them all the time. And it's helpful for us to understand that, because as I'm saying these things about this one to come, this man of destruction, this son of lawlessness, I think part of you, and this is because Tuesday's coming, are thinking about the other candidate. I don't know what your candidate is, You're thinking about the other candidate, and you're like, oh, my gosh, does he have a mirror? Like, he's totally describing that guy. And the other guy is saying the same thing about your guy. 
What I'm saying to you, though, is that the enemy has schemes that he always does. These things are happening in miniature all the time. That should freak us out, though, because it means that you and I are susceptible to these same movements towards lawlessness and towards destruction. Our hearts have that same propensity to take what we should love and exchange it for something that's much less worthy, leading to our eventual lawlessness, destruction. When he's talking about the temple of God, it's very helpful if we jump back into understanding, interpreting what's being said there. When he's talking about the temple of God, he's talking about, Paul is talking about, referring to, again, Jesus' teaching on this stuff. He's talking in a word about us. This destruction, this lawlessness, we are in danger of it happening because... He's saying that this temple of God, that this son of destruction is going to set up shop in, is us. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus, in chapter 2 of John, confronts the Jews, and he's flipping over tables, and he's doing all this stuff to show that the way that they were treating God's temple is illegitimate, unacceptable. And they're freaking out back at him, and they're coming at him. And the Jews say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What authority do you have to come in here and be monkeying with what we're doing? Jesus responds, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews respond, somewhat reasonably, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Bro, you're going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Now here's where you need to read the Bible like an adult. You need to attempt to understand what's being said and really read it at the level that it is attempting for you to read it. What is a temple? Is it just the building? Or is there a symbolism to it? Is there a meaning to it that's way above, way beyond just a building? Why would Jesus call himself the temple? Well, the temple was the meeting place of God and man. The temple was the footstool of God on earth. It was his presence on earth. The temple was the place where a cleaning happened for man to be able to be in God's presence. Now, what of those things sounds like Jesus? All of them. All of them. Jesus is God's presence on earth. Jesus is the meeting place of God and man. Jesus is the one who is able to effect a cleansing so that we can be in God's presence. And he's saying that he is that temple. And here's the incredible mystery of the gospel and Christianity. If you become his, you're included, you're, you're enfolded into him. Here's what I mean by that. If you go into the book of Acts, this Paul guy is going around persecuting Christians however he can, and he's on the road to Damascus, and while he's going, Jesus appears to him. And of course, Saul falls on the ground, falling to the ground. He heard the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, why does he say that when Paul is trying to get Stephen stoned, taking out arrest warrants against men and women who are followers of Jesus? Because to be a follower of Jesus is to be in him. 
It's to be his, to be united to him, so much so that he actually thinks of you as himself. It's the same language that we get in marriage. They become one. You treat this other as yourself. Second Corinthians is just one example of many where this theology of our union with Christ is laid out as the gospel. It says in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, that meeting place of God and man, who made us clean. He reconciled us to himself. And then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. So he starts talking about how we are part of this ministry of reconciliation, and then he immediately calls that ministry of reconciliation what God is doing through Christ. This mixing of terms between us and Christ, us united to him. That's what it means to have this love of him, to have your heart lifted up, to choose to love what is most sublime. And you're going to fail and you're going to screw it up all the time, but he's so good that he comes and he actually unites himself to you in a marriage contract. You and him, him and us forever. So you start to put it all together. This apostasy is going to take place where the son of destruction inserts himself into this church that God has built and declares himself to be God. And an apostasy takes place. Lots of people start to believe him. And why? Well, he's deceiving. And we want to be deceived. It says in the beginning of this chapter that Paul is, he's, he's trying to remind them, hey, now listen, 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 listen to what I am saying and treat what I am saying as the truth here because there's lots of people who are trying to sound like me. As you go towards the end of the chapter, he talks about the way in which this false prophet, this son of destruction is going to work. He's going to be doing the same kinds of things that the enemy has always done. He's going to lie. He's going to deceive. You get down to the bottom, it talks about the way that he's going to perform these signs and wonders. Matthew, Jesus said the same thing would happen. Matthew 24, false Christs and false prophets, again plural because there's this multiple, or multiple fulfillment, are going to arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Listen, I've told you this beforehand. And yet, all of this deception... When Christ returns, it says in verse 8, the lawless one's going to be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This guy is claiming to be something like Christ, claiming to be God. He's lying, lying, lying. But when the real comes, the light drives out the darkness just like these lights drive out the darkness. Truth drives out deception where Jesus, by the word of his mouth, That truth drives out this deception. He's just destroyed. So, believers, we have to watch out for apostasy. We have to watch out for false teachers. We have to watch out for those that are going to get inside our desires for lawlessness, our desires for our own lordship of our lives to lead us to destruction. Why you should follow leaders who give you good counsel from Scripture. You get into the last part of 1 Thessalonians, that's the first part of that last chapter. 
Honor your leaders. Now, I was going to preach a whole sermon on it. It seemed a little self-serving, but you need to hear it. The Bible says it. And knowing these things to be true, get to work. He ends by talking about how we should not be idle. That there is a version of this that makes you think, okay, well, let me just hunker down. Let me just wait. Let me make sure my kids are okay, and then let me just get through this. But if you have been united with Christ, you have been united in a death like his, you've been united in a resurrection like his, and you've been united in a ministry like his. This ministry of reconciliation that we've been given. God, we are praying, will comfort us through this hope of grace and establish us in every good work and word. When we encourage you to still be praying for, contacting other people in the church, connecting with, trying to share the gospel with people outside the church, we are not just trying to beef up some sort of artificial number. We're trying to pursue together God's mission for us to see people avoid this destruction. Are you in on that? Do you understand the value of that? To in love be united with Christ and to just go where he goes. Our little puppy, it's so frustrating right now. He goes wherever we go. So you can't go into any room. You can't do anything in any room without having to accommodate the extra 35 seconds it's going to take to get the stupid dog to go back out of the room because I was just getting a toothbrush. I don't need to stay in the bathroom. But he goes where I go. He tries to do what I do. That's the ministry we've been given, united with him. We just go where he goes, and we just do what he does. Oh, man, listen, I hope that you are encouraged because God is good. He is coming. This this lawlessness, this apostasy that's promised, it is going to come, and he's going to make it disappear with the word of his mouth. So, as we always want, come to Jesus and live. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your kindness and grace to us. None of this stuff is deserved, Lord. It's all given by grace. The knowledge, the the sight that we have of whatever is coming, that's all given by grace. The warnings that we have to avoid the sort of versions of this stuff that are always possible, always tempting to pull our hearts away from what is most lovely, honorable, right, true, pure, Lord, I just pray that you would focus our hearts on you. (laughs) Lord, I pray that you would pull some sort of a through line through all the words and all the sort of quick, quick, quick assimilation of information to people so that we walk out of here not trying to put together charts on when you arrive, but with a steadfast watch on our own hearts so that apostasy doesn't take root, doesn't begin in our heart, but that we are always and forever in love with you. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.